Well, good morning again. It's, uh, it's a pleasure once again to stand before you to be used by God to minister His Word for, for His glory and for your faith and communion with Him. And I pray that the Lord will continue to abide with us as He did this morning's study and um, for your good and for His name's sake as well. Um, today's message I have entitled, The Holiness of God. And if you please turn your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. You know, I, uh, just a little bit of insight this, uh, this morning as I was coming here, I noticed I was going through my sermon notes, and as I was getting to the last three, four pages, I found my printer failed me on those last few pages. And, uh, but uh, my brother Adam... Uh, helped and print the message out. And uh, one of the things he said in the text message, I said, can you print the sermon? He goes, 21 pages of it? <laughs> and I laughed, and it was funny. Um, and the reason is because this portion of Scripture, I actually had to work in great depths for a course in seminary. They had a few passages, and I decided my heart landed on this passage, um, and I could not shake it. So it was a much... Um, study and resources, and actually I've cut down probably about almost 10 pages of this sermon, So, uh, but by God's grace, I pray that it will be a blessing to you above all. So uh, let us seek his help once again through prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask for your helping hand, Lord, that you would continue to abide with us on this special day, Lord, the Lord's Day, Father, and we pray that... Um, you will continue to abide with, us, abide with us as you have with the reading of Scripture, the singing of your praises, Lord, and prayer. And we pray, Lord, that even now, Father, that you would uh, use a, a feeble man, Lord, to uh, be useful for your kingdom, for the good of your church. And also, Lord, as our brother Adam prayed earlier, that even to the conversion of sinners, Lord, um, that you would receive all the honor and praises and glory, Lord, for you are worthy. You are truly worthy, Father. So be with us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, um, um, so in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, uh, we will be dealing with verses 1 through 8, and mostly because of it's so rich, and it's, they all connect together. I could not just pick one or two verses out of this section. I, I just had to just go at it for all six of them, so, um, and uh, all eight of them, so, uh, pick it up in verse 1, Isaiah chapter 6, pick it up in verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, 
the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tong- with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Now, one of the things as a preacher you tend when it comes to an introduction is sometimes you grapple with this elaborate kind of, you know, display of a great introduction to come to your portion of scripture that you're going to preach. And for today, I just have, I think the context of Isaiah in chapter 6 is sufficient enough for an introduction. You see, at this time, Israel here was divided during this time in, in, in Israel's history. It was split into two. The northern kingdom had split from the southern kingdom. Now, Isaiah served as a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. This part of Israel was not at its worst during this time, but they were nonetheless turning away from God. As a lot of you are aware of reading your Bibles, the northern kingdom seemed to have fallen very quick to hypocrisy and paganism, and you know they were you know, overruled. Um, the previous chapters now leading up to this point, and Isaiah tells us that the Lord was deeply angry with the people of Israel up until this point. In the first chapter of Isaiah, we read that the Lord considers Israel as sons he has raised and brought up, but they have revolted against him. The Lord calls them a sinful nation, weighed down with iniquity and offspring of evildoers, and sons who act corruptly. They are a people who have abandoned the Lord and have despised the Holy One of Israel. And God has had enough and promises a day of reckoning now is coming for Israel. The Lord threatens that He will call a nation from afar, a nation that will rise up and come swiftly. The Lord promises that Israel's men will fall by the sword and their mighty ones in battle, and threatens the people with exile and slavery. Oh, how far during this time Israel has fallen. While the people continue to bring offerings, their worship was hypocritical during this time, which was nothing more than an attempt to mask their sin before God. And how foolish, if you truly know the one true and living God, you cannot... Deceive him. You can't fool him. But apparently Israel thought they could. Here in chapter 6, Isaiah was commissioned to call the people of Israel to account now. But not until the Lord gave Isaiah a revelation. In section 1 of this section of scripture, we will consider what Isaiah saw. What did Isaiah see? In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, Isaiah describes what he saw. It says, in the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne 
high and lifted up. In the year that King Uzziah died, you know, is a great deal more than just a date for chronological purposes, right? I mean, this is more than just a date. In order to feel the weight of the words of our text, we have to understand who Uzziah, King Uzziah was during this particular time in Israel's history now. And I thought this was actually quite significant. Now, what we know about King Uzziah from Scripture is that King Uzziah's reign was a very long and prosperous one. You know, in 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26 tells us that Uzziah was actually made a king when he was only 16 years old. 16 years old. And he ruled over Judah for 52 years. 52 years. Often when you read the, the, the chronicles of like all the kings and stuff, some were few, some were a little bit more, but King Uzziah had 52 years of ruling over Judah. The Bible tells us that God lavished great success and prosperity during King Uzziah's reign. And the Lord, seemed, it seemed that when King Uzziah was on the throne, there was great comfort and favor upon Israel. You know, with, as long as King Uzziah was apparently on the throne, Israel seemed to be held together and secure. During the greater part of King Uzziah's reign, Israel had economic stability during this time, military strength, right? And as long as Uzziah was on the throne, there was a sense of God's blessing and goodness to Israel. <clears throat> now, the Bible says that Uzziah did what was right in the sight of the Lord and continued to seek God. And that is a noble thing. That is a great thing. I wish our leaders nowadays would have such character traits of seeking the Lord. And as long as here, for, as far as Uzziah, as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. Now, but as history shows, the best of men are men at best. Unfortunately, King Uzziah's life really did not end well as it started. The scriptures tell us that when King Uzziah grew strong, he also grew prideful. Okay? And we read of one occasion, for example, of King Uzziah, where he stepped out of line where he attempted to usurp the priestly role in offering incense in the temple of the Lord. And then the priest opposed him and said, It is not right or your place, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. How what happened? Well, however, Uzziah persisted on burning incense to the temple, in the temple, and then the Lord struck him with leprosy. Despite these circumstances, backslidden Israel had put all their hope in the reign of King Uzziah. Then all of a sudden now, it is the year that King Uzziah is dead. Now we are not to read these words too casual now. You see, during this time also, rumors of Assyria and its rise to power have been circulating in Israel. Stories of their military strength and conquest over their enemies was well known during this time. Also during this time, Ephraim and Syria are, are posing a political threat to Judah, to Israel. 
On top of that, the country of Israel was in peril through moral decay. As all of the verses I read previously, the Lord was not pleased with Israel during this time. Then Israel finds out that their king, who had brought such security for them, is dead. The throne of David, as one man puts it, could not have been vacant at a more worse time. It could not have been. This is a major national crisis right now for them. For the people of Israel, the death of Uzziah marks the end of an age. And it was during this time of pandemonium that Isaiah says, In the year of King Uzziah's the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Now, Isaiah being concerned with the condition of Israel and having foresight of their future downfall, Isaiah wondered, where was the Lord during all this? You know, Isaiah could have possibly went to the temple to pray for Israel and could have asked the question multiple times during hardship, where are you, Lord? A lot of times even us in our hardships, we cry, Lord, where are you? I need you. Israel, Isaiah is pleading for Israel. Where are you, Lord? And according to this vision, the Lord was sitting on a throne. You want to know where I am, Isaiah? Here you are. I'm sitting on a throne. The fact that God is sitting on a throne means that despite Isaiah's despairing over the vacancy over the throne of Israel, the throne of heaven is occupied. While Israel is in complete disarray over the vacancy of an earthly throne, God's throne is at complete stability and tranquility. There is no other portrait now in Scripture that is given to us than other than the Lord sitting on the throne. Every, almost everywhere in the Bible... You had a vision, that if, a, if there was a vision spoken of, of God, He's always sitting on a throne. He's always sitting on a throne. All of the visions from the prophets Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, speak of God sitting upon His throne. And for example, the Apostle John, likewise in the book of Revelation, saw God on a throne. I mean... The book of Revelation is very vivid in portraying the, the majesty of God sitting on the throne. I mean, it, it, for anyone with common sense and with a conscience, you read that book, you have, this, you have this awe of, this is the God we're going to face on the other side of death or when Christ comes. We are going to see this God and this throne. According to the Bible, from beginning to end, it appears that the Lord is always, the Lord is, always has been, and always will be upon this throne. Now this throne that God is on, says Isaiah says that is high and lifted up. High and lifted up. High in that the throne is high in majesty. Lifted up as in exaltation. God sits on a high and towering throne. Not only above other thrones, but rules over them with greater power and authority. What Isaiah is to, 
what Isaiah is to understand here is that there is no earthly king that is his equal. Not even the Queen of England and all of the monarchs and the thrones and all that. There, God has no equal when it comes to his throne and his authority. There is no equal. You know, it is no coincidence here during the vacancy of a king sitting upon Israel's earthly throne that Isaiah sees the vision of God sitting upon his throne. It's as if God's saying, Isaiah, have no fear. I am on my throne. I am on my throne. You know, what is some, what is, you know, it should give us a sense of comfort to know that no matter what is going on in our personal life or in our nation or in the world, God is on his throne. Next, Isaiah says, the train of his robe filled the temple. The Lord is sitting on a throne and he is wearing a robe now. Isaiah says it's the robes, right? Fills the temple. The train of his robes filled the temple. The Lord God is wearing a robe that is spilling over the sides of his throne and it's overflowing the temple. Well, some may see little significance in this statement, but in the ancient world, the status of a king was often communicated by the fabric or length, length of a king's robes. Robes often signified the presence of dignitaries. Flowing robes were commonly worn by great monarchs. Even seen in paintings and portraits like, you know, for example, what's with, with England, right? I mean, with the, the, the king and the queen and all these, you know, the robes and then the portraits we see of olden times, they had these great robes, right? And they had it following feet behind them. And often the size of the robe would indicate the degree of splendidness or nobility a particular king had. Now here Isaiah sees God sitting on a lofty throne, clothed as it were, with a royal robe filled, that filled the entire temple. As R.C. Sproul says it, every square inch of it. If you think about it, what a glorious image of God here. What a splendid, magnificent image that we have of God here. You see, some people have a portrait that of God as he's some old guy just sitting on a rocking chair, just... How you been there? Come on. Talk to me. Been a bad boy today? Yeah. Some people honestly think like that's the picture of of their, they have an image of God in their heads. Isaiah's vision leaves us a portrait of the Lord's splendor and glory that is unparalleled like anything on earth. He is distinguished by dignity, beauty, beauty magnificence, and excellency here. Furthermore, Isaiah describes this throne being attended by ministering servants. Look in your Bibles, it says, Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. 
First we see, we will consider these creatures now before the throne of God. And second, their disposition before him now. In this vision, first surrounding the throne of God are angels now. And they're known here as, I say, as, as seraphim. Now the Bible does not say a whole lot about these creatures. Because this is the only place where they're recorded. However, upon further reading of the scriptures, without a doubt, these are the same angelic beings spoken of in the book of Revelation. Now, chapter 4, verses 6 to 11. As the four living creatures. Now, the word seraphim at its root means flame or burning fire. Now, at its root, the word seraphim. Which can be translated as burning flames. Or the burning ones. You know, now I, I like how Steve Lawson put it at this point. Um, he says, these are angelic beings that are on fire for God. And I thought that was well put. Paul washes. Now, one thing that he noticed here, he says that one thing uh, we can, that's safe to assume about seraphim is that these creatures are the most majestic and most powerful beings out of all God's creation. And the reason, he says, is because of their proximity to the throne of God. How close they are to the throne of God. These are some creatures that can remain in the presence of one who is known in Scripture as a consuming fire. Think about it, as a consuming fire. And yet they, these seraphim, are not consumed before him. So they're mighty creatures. Now Isaiah tells us that these seraphim, with two wings they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. Now, that may seem a little strange if you think about it. I mean, we see birds, if you look at it, you only need two wings, right? I mean, anything that flies, it's two wings typically, right? I mean... Why, shouldn't they only need two wings to fly and perform God's divine bidding? So why the other four wings? Why the other two sets of wings on top of the two they have? Well, with regards to the angels covering their faith, the face, the seraphim were taking a humble posture before the Almighty now. That's pretty obvious, right? They're taking a humble posture before Him. Thus we see that while the Lord and His angels are both supernatural beings... While the Lord is a consuming fire, and while they themselves, the seraphim, are a flame of fire, God remains in a class entirely of his own before them, before these seraphim. These seraphim know that they are not worthy to be in the presence of the Almighty. Great and powerful as these seraphim are, untainted by human sin, still admire the Lord God in great humility. Great humility. Here, even the seraphim cover their faces as a sign of reverence and awe before God. Beloved, if this be the case of God's most powerful beings, powerful creatures as the seraphim, how much more are we to shudder and quake when in His presence? How much more should we be, have humility when approaching our Lord. Brethren, if 
if a seraphim hides his face, surely we likewise are to see to it that since we worship a God who is a consuming fire, we ought to serve him with reverence and godly fear. We're not to come here just going through the motions and just playing the role. and We're not to take this as like, just, just treat it as common. We're in the presence of God. So we are to have a holy reverence for Him. Next, we read of these seraphim uh, use the, uh, the other two wings to cover their feet now. Okay, one they're flying, two they're flying, two of them are covering their face. Now the other two, they're covering their feet. Now this was, this was tough in, in my studies because I have read many commentaries on this for many explanations. I mean, why did they cover their feet? What, what's the meaning of that? Well, some here observed here some sort of euphemism of the seraphim covering their nakedness before the Almighty. Others believe the symbolism of feet indicate one's direction or will, and therefore the seraphim covering their uh, feet um, is basically showing their indication of submission to the direction of God's commands. Okay. Uh, the other point, others point out that the practice of covering feet was one common was uh, common in the presence of. Eastern uh, magistrates, uh, like kings, uh, in order to show reverence. You know, and I was reminded, for example, of Moses in Exodus chapter 3. Remember when he was approaching the burning bush? He is told to remove his sandals, right? Remove your sandals, for the place you stand is holy ground. So there was a lot of things. Now, personally, I think in light of the seraphim being so close to the throne of God, I think not only did they have to fly in midair, but they also had to cover their feet because of the royal robes of God that filled the temple, every square inch of it. I mean, if you think about it, where else were these seraphim to place their feet? Was it supposed to be on the robes of God? No. I think they covered their feet as they flew midair to not show disrespect of treading upon the royal robes of God. It was a holy ground meant for the royal robe of God and not for their feet. Now, the examples here of the seraphim are worthy of consideration. It is absolutely necessary for reverence in our worship of God, as I mentioned. The Lord is never pleased with lukewarmness from us, beloved, before His throne. He wants hearts that are on fire for His presence and glory. That's what He wants. I mean, in considering the example of the seraphim, are there not anyone here at times feel their own carelessness and shallowness as you come before to worship the Lord sometimes? How you feel detached? I'm guilty of it at times. When I come here, my heart is cold. And I'm just looking to just sing, hear the message, and go about my day. And beloved, that's not how it ought to be. Our hearts are to be on fire for our God. Now, in a section 2 of this portion of Scripture, uh, we will see what Isaiah heard now in verse 3. In verse 3, Isaiah describes what he heard. 
Verse 3, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now, here Isaiah hears the anthem or song of praises, as many put it, which the seraphs sang to honor Him who sat on the throne. We read the words that they sang, the words, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now one word that stands out in our text, which, which does not take some exegetical genius, is the word holy here, which is pretty obvious. Holy, holy, holy. The word holy at its root means to cut or to separate, separate, which has the idea of apartness or separateness, right? It describes someone or something which is set apart for other people or things. Now, an object can be holy if it is set apart for sacred use. A person is holy if they are set apart for God's will and purpose. And, you know, this is the whole idea behind the word the Greek word hagios, which is translated for saints. That's the whole idea of saints as Christians. We are separate. We have to be separate from the world. We are set apart for God. Which labels Christians as separate from all other people. We are considered to be God's distinct people. But when this definition is applied to God himself, it carries a far greater meaning now. Because from what can be... What can... God be separated from. God, I mean, God is holy. He's separate. The very essence of God means He is separate from all that is not God. And not perfect, which means that God is incomparable. God is incomparable. There is none or nothing you can compare God to. Exodus 15.11 states, Who is like you among the gods? And of course the answer is no one. Because there is no other gods. There's only one true living God. The word holy, furthermore, with reference to God, means there is no trace of, like as Paul Washer says, evil in his character. God is morally pure. And not just merely pure, but perfect. God is perfect. God is morally perfect who cannot even look upon sin. Holiness in reference to God means that he is separate from him. Human infirmity, impurity, and wickedness. There is no darkness in God, for He's all light. Paul Washer also, once again, he asks the question, how many times did Adam and Eve sin before He cast them out of the garden? Once. Just one sin. That's all it was. God is a God who cannot tolerate sin. He is holy, holy, holy. The word holy could also mean to be consecrated or dedicated, which gives the idea of being removed from the realm of what is common to the realm of being sacred. God is never to be estimated as, a com as, as common by His creation. We're not to, I mean, it just sickens me now as a Christian when I hear people using the Lord's name in vain. Like We hear it on our TVs, we hear it in the workplaces. It, just, it grieves us. To, to, to the point like, do you not understand how holy God is and His majesty? 
If you even understood just a fraction of His almighty power, I mean, you would rip your tongue out of your mouth in order to stop using the Lord's name in vain. He is holy. God is never to be considered calming from us. He is not ordinary. God is sacred. He is sacred. Now, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, why do the seraphim repeat holy three times? Why? I mean, wasn't it enough to simply just say that the Lord is holy just once, right? Isn't it sufficient? Well, some scholars see a picture of the Trinity in the thrice-repeated word holy. That holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. Which I will say, I will not argue against. Yes. I agree that holy is the Father. Holy is the Son. Holy is the Spirit. Three in one. But I believe the point of the repetition of the word holy was to emphasize the holiness of God. In the Hebrew language, intensity was often communicated by repetition. I mean, repeating something over and over was to intensify. According to Van Pella, Hebrew, uh, sky, uh, Hebrew uh, repeats words for emphasis. In the Hebrew language, emphasis was added to was added to a word by repeating it more than once. Now, when it comes to Isaiah 6, one commentator states, to say that the Lord is holy says a lot. To say that the Lord is holy, holy says far more. But to say that the Lord is holy, 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 is to declare His holiness in the highest possible degree. When the seraphim repeat repeats the holiness of God, it is not for repetition's sake, it is for emphasis' sake. And furthermore, to prove the point, out of all the attributes of God that are listed in the Bible, none of them are emphasized like God's holiness. And what I mean is, you never find in Scripture that God is love, love, love. You never find in Scripture that God is patient, patient, patient. Or that He's merciful, merciful, merciful. But what you do find is that God is holy, holy, holy. The seraphim's threefold proclamation leaves no room for us to doubt that God is a holy God. Next, the seraphim also proclaimed that the whole earth is full of His glory in our text. The glory of the Lord is not something that can be contained now, beloved. His glory not only fills heaven... But it also fills the whole earth. This means that God's glory has gone public. The seraphim surrounding the throne of God could see this probably better than Isaiah could now, if you think about it. We are often blinded to the obvious glory of God in creation. We are to realize that the earth is an extension of the throne and glory of God. For example, it says... That heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. God's glory is too big for us. It's too big. Earth is just his footstool. Where mere men try to claim a piece of land and say, this is my kingdom. Yeah. The whole world is the footstool of God. His kingdom is mighty and it is grand. Now, 
Next, we text Isaiah uh, what he sees. He says he sees the post of the door was shaking by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now one man states, it is as if there is an earthquake in heaven now. As Isaiah sees this vision, the doorposts of the throne is shaking. He says it's as if heaven is having an earthquake. This shaking of the foundations of the doorposts could either be by the voice of God or by the seraphim who proclaimed and sang so powerfully the glory of God. These high and majestic beings, perhaps the highest beings of all, of God's creation, have one beautiful occupation, to worship and praise the Lord God of heaven and earth. So mighty was their proclamation. Possible. At such a sight, Isaiah is in complete awe. He's in complete awe when he sees this. This heavenly vision. I mean, Isaiah 6 paints such a glorious picture of God seated on his throne, which cannot be compared to the earthly kingdom of Uzziah. This is a throne unlike any other throne that Isaiah has ever seen in his life. And you know, sometimes words can fall short of what someone actually really sees. And we can see these words and we can ex- exegete them, but to use our imagination to see it, I mean, it must have been mighty, what Isaiah saw. It must have been mighty. Now, in section 3, in seeing this, next we will see what Isaiah felt now. What did Isaiah feel after seeing this vision? Well, in verse 4 we read, Woe, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? To Isaiah, he says, not me. Not me. Apparently the revelation of the Holy One was so disturbing to Isaiah, he is shocked to his core. Now what made Isaiah feel like he was coming apart now, what was it? Well, two things. First, because Isaiah is aware of his own sin now before God. And second, because he had seen God in truth now. He did not hear say, he seen God. Upon seeing the heavenly vision of God, Isaiah pronounces a woe upon himself. The word woe is defined as an interjection of denouncement, of being cursed now. It is a strong expression of grief and despair. The term woe is a self threatening term. It's not a self-benefiting term. It is a self-threatening term. And that's because as Isaiah says in his own words, for I am undone, which can also be translated, I am destroyed, cut off, or doomed to die. Which indicates that calamity was, has fallen or is about to fall on him. That's as he felt. Isaiah was a righteous, godly man by all outward appearances. I mean, yet when he saw the enthroned king, the Lord of hosts, he saw how sinful he was in comparison. And this is what truly happens when you come into the presence of God. You get convicted of your sins. When you read God's word and, and, and the Spirit is convicting you, you see it as, as a mirror. You see the stain and dirt on yourself. You know, 
This is the same experience that Job had in uh, Job chapter 42. Therefore I have uttered, um, excuse me, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye see thee, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. When Isaiah comes into the presence of God, the only thing that Isaiah can do is pronounce a woe upon himself. And furthermore, Isaiah instantly recognizes that God's covenant people are also undone. Isaiah realized that he was associated with, he says, a sinful society, a sinful people who despised the Holy One of Israel. I mean, that is, this is a scary realization for him. Long story short, Isaiah and Israel did not know God as they ought to have known Him. When Isaiah saw the angels in all their holy humility, obedience, praise to God, he realized not only was he not like the Lord, but he was not even like the angels of heaven. They could cry out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Beautifully, they could. But Isaiah could not because he was a man of unclean lips. And that happens to us at times when we're dealing with sin that we have not confessed to the Lord or come clean with the Lord. It's hard to open our mouths to praise Him in truth. It's when we come clean before the Lord and He washes us clean that we can come to Him with unsinning hearts and, and looking forward to that day in truth where we would have unsinning hearts. You know, men are not innocent when it comes to offending God. With their mouths. I mean, Isaiah himself confessed that he had often offended in word. As the scriptures say, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, furthermore, the word undone here could also be translated to be silent now. Which gives the idea that Isaiah wanted to speak, but he didn't. So he kept himself silent. One commentator mentions, but we see in Isaiah's self-instruction to keep quiet. Here the word can literally be translated Keep quiet. Isaiah is speechless before an almighty God. He cannot praise God because the very mouth needed to do so is unclean. In other words, in the presence of the most holy God, the seraphim can praise Him, but man can't. The prime reason for Isaiah's silence, he states, is, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What an extraordinary sense here. That Isaiah has with his own eyes seen the King of King and Lord of Lords. Not directly in a detailed way, but he saw the Lord's glory more than as anyone ever did see. He could say, I say the King of Lord of Hosts, I can see Him. Now, but upon further reading of the Scriptures, the New Testament leads us to believe that what Isaiah is seeing here is an early Old Testament vision of the Lord Jesus Christ now. I mean, the Apostle John, after quoting a few verses from this very chapter of Isaiah now, um, in summarizing the ministry of Jesus, writes, John writes in chapter 12, verses 36 to 41, and I would encourage you to take time to read that later. He writes, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, Jesus' glory, and spoke about him. When John saw Jesus in his day and writes of him, he does not so by applying Isaiah 6 to him. He does so by, excuse me, by applying Isaiah 6 to him. 
Dr. James White here comments that if we ask Isaiah, whose glory did you see in your vision of the temple, right? If you ask Isaiah, he would reply, I saw Yahweh. But if you ask the same question to John, whose glory did Isaiah see? He would give the same answer, only in its fullness, Jesus Christ. Dr. R.C. Sproul says at this point, although Isaiah could not explain the fullness of what he saw in the year King Uzziah died, he know, excuse me, we know who the prophet met when he was called to the ministry. In John, the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 36 and following, the apostle comments that Jesus' ministry fulfilled Isaiah chapter 6, 9 and following. So right, right after these verses, verses 1 through 8, if you read verses 9 through 10, basically John is quoting those verses and showing the fulfillment of Jesus' ministry. Isaiah met the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was exalted before Isaiah and his glorious robes spread out so that no one else could have a place near him. Jesus is unique in himself. He is the Son of God which by the seraphim have to cover their face, their feet, when, coming, when drawing near to him. Now, in our final section, what Isaiah receives now in verses 6 through 7. What does Isaiah receive now in seeing this vision? Well, then we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Now one of the angelic beings who surrounded the throne of God came and ministered to Isaiah. And he flew, one flew to Isaiah and with a live coal he touched his lips. An altar is a structure upon which offerings are made for many religious purposes in the Old Testament such as the burning of incense or grain offerings. One thing we know about the altar is that the altar is where sin and guilt was also dealt with. The burning coal. It was from this altar in that one of the seraphs took a burning coal and applied it to Isaiah's lips. I tried to consider what the significance of applying a burning coal from the altar to directly on Isaiah's lips. Like, what's the significance of it? Well, Edward Young here states at this point, in a symbolic sense, fire is regarded as having purifying power. The application of fire to the lips of Isaiah, therefore, symbolizes the fact that those lips which were once unclean were now cleansed. They were purified now. Now Isaiah could worship the Lord. This burning coal symbolizes the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. and His sacrificial death, He has purified us from our sins. Now, once Isaiah was cleansed from his guilt, he calls, God calls Isaiah to service. Here, and he comes, to, and this is what Isaiah says, As I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who shall go for us? Then I said, Isaiah says, Here I am, send me. Now, with regard to the Lord's statement, Who shall go for us? I mean, some men explain it in many ways. Oh, God is speaking of him and the angels and the seraphim. No, I believe it's the Trinity that is here he's speaking of. Who shall go for us? A triune God. Here I am. Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. 
Isaiah emphatically answered God's call here. He said, with no hesitation, God's grace leads Isaiah from woe is me to here I am. Here I am. Here is the turning point in Isaiah's ministry. This is the account of Isaiah's personal revival. A true encounter with the holiness of God and forgiveness of God compels holy service. Those of you who are truly born again, when you were once forgiven and saved, you know what I'm talking about, how afterwards you desired to serve the Lord. Let me tell you something. When God sends a man, He does not send just any man to speak on His behalf. He sends someone who understands His holiness, who has experienced His grace. Those are the most effective people to go out and witness and minister the gospel to the lost. God cleanses sinners and commissions them to spread the gospel. What better messenger to send than sinners who have experienced mercy from God? I mean, this is one of the reasons why I think the Apostle Paul was so active and wrote most of the New Testament because out of all the apostles, Paul was going to persecute Christians, right? And all of a sudden, the Lord, as it were, knocks him off his high horse and says, Go, I have work for you. And then he realizes afterwards, like, I, I did not seek God, but he sought me and he changed me. Now he's using me? I mean, that, that's why the, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul has so much to say. And sinners who've been forgiven much, love much, and they speak much about Christ. You know, so the, it's, it's the grace of God and his forgiveness that moves us, that revives us, our own personal revival, to preach the gospel. The cross of Christ proved that the Lord is holy now. The cross of Christ proved that the Lord is holy. Because if the Lord was not holy, he could have just did away with sin. Don't worry, guys, I'll forgive you. No, that the Lord was so holy that he had to send his own son to bear his wrath because God is holy, holy, holy. And it took God's son, not some great prophet, right? Not some great individual in church history. No, it took God's son to absorb the wrath of God. Because God is holy, holy, holy. We could not endure God's wrath. We were not, and we're not able to. It took His Son to endure that wrath. So therefore that we would have forgiveness and mercy in the Beloved. Now what are some applications we can get from this? Well, first of all, as we see from our text, that men need a proper view of God. Right? Men need a correct view of God. If they're going to know him in truth, this can be said of both inside and outside the church. First of all, all true revival now within the church always takes place when God's people fully understand who God is. More particularly, his holiness. Once a church gets encountered with God's holiness and truth, it brings revival. It brings repentance. It brings zeal for God. And also, likewise, with spreading the gospel with those outside the church. I mean, holiness and the righteousness of God needs to be expounded. It's not enough to say, oh, you know, God has a great plan for you. God is love, love, love. No, the Bible don't say that, right? Oh, God is merciful, merciful, merciful. No, 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 it doesn't say that. It says that God is holy, holy, holy. And you want to know something? Men will never come to a God that they have not offended. They will never fear God that they have never offended. 
They figure God is just their friend, right? That, oh, you know, he, me and God, me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. Until you know God in truth and how holy he is, you do not have a relationship with God. And when you see that, is when you truly see the cross of Christ. I mean, when he sweated drops of blood, what do you think? What do you think? It was hot or something? You think it was like, oh, the, you know, this cross and this whips are so... No. It was the wrath of God being poured upon him that he was sweating drops of blood where he even cried, Lord, if this cup may pass me, let it pass, but not my will, may your will be done. That speaks a lot about the holiness of God. And therefore, we as Christians, we as Christians, we ought to be grateful for the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be grateful for Him standing in our place and absorbing the wrath of God, whereby now you can have forgiveness and eternal life and a relationship with the Almighty, whereby you will never be separated from God. You know, on the cross, He cried, My God, my God, why has Thou forsaken me, right? But then in Hebrews, it says, the Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, beloved. I mean, Christ bore the wrath of God in such a way that is horrifying when you think about it. But then now we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. I tell you, let us honor and cherish the Lord Jesus Christ because of the holy, holy, holiness of God. Sin had to be dealt with. And it was the Lord, His Son, who took that place for us. So therefore, let us be holy as He is holy. Let us live lives in holiness as the Lord God is holy. Let us pray.